The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Hey, hey, welcome. You know what this is? Disability Law Show. Love having you here. Tamara Gopian, always ready to go. Partner, Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. So feel free to reach out to Tamar. <laughs> And her excellent team that are behind her every step of the way and would get behind you as well. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Lots of ground to cover. Lots of emails pouring in tomorrow. So we'll, uh, we'll pitter-patter, as they say. But you always start off with uh, a bit of a story or an anecdote to get the show uh, off and running, pal. What do you got uh, this week? I do, John. I spend a lot of time, as I say on the show, fairly regularly speaking with individuals who might be at different stages in their claims. Perhaps they're still on claim, but they have some questions to direct to us about what to do with their claim or an adjuster or a particular situation they have going on. Or, you know, they've unfortunately received the axe by the insurance company. Their claim is coming to a close and, you know, they're looking for some options and some answers. And so I spoke to someone uh, this week, uh, let's call him Phil, Uh, you know, I want to protect his identity. Uh, But I thought that the questions that he asked were really interesting. And so let me give you the background, John, and it's fairly typical. You know, he is in the stage of the own occupation period of his policy. He is getting his disability benefits. So his insurer has accepted that he is disabled and incapable as a result of his health to work in essentially a finance type role that he had for a not-for-profit type organization. So, you know, he's good with the dollars and cents, uh, perhaps much better than I am. But in any event, um, you know, he's describing to me that the insurer is essentially going to close his claim on the basis that he can either go back to his job or do any other job. And the reason they're using, uh, you know, what they're saying to him as to their basis for doing so is because they're saying, look, you've, his disability has some mental health components, John, and it's got a physical component. But they're saying, look, your employer will be able to accommodate. You can probably work from home. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but you can probably work from home and you can continue getting the treatment that you need, uh, but still be able to work in some capacity. These kinds of scenarios, John, create a lot of gray, unfortunately, you know, so, you know, his doctors, Phil's doctors are saying to him, look, you're not yet ready to resume full-time work, but we want to encourage you to try something. And they've said to him, you know, maybe you want to try volunteer work or perhaps doing some financial things, you know, through tax season. We just went through that, John, perhaps doing a little bit of that for family and friends on the side and sort of getting a sense, you know, get get your feet wet, so to speak. And let's get a better uh, barometer around whether or not Phil can actually get back to his actual occupational duties. And if not, is there some other capacity for him to work? Because let's also not forget what happens after typically two years of being on claim with an insurer, right around that time, there will be a change in the definition to continue to qualify for long-term disability benefits. The lens then becomes, are you capable, is Phil capable in this situation to do some other occupation? Anything in the world, John, for which he might have the basic education and training to do, Mm -hmm. uh, and the, obviously the functional abilities to do it. So 
I'm gathering he had a relatively office type job. So it's somewhat sedentary. It's kind of a sitting down type job, uh, but it had a lot of cognitive elements. So, you know, when you're dealing with numbers and, you know, your, your spreadsheets and multitasking and this kind of thing, those things are a lot tougher to measure. And so I get it. You know, I get his doctor saying to him, look, our advice is let's try and put you in a similar context and see how you do. Here's where the gray comes in, though, John. Insurance companies, you know, the adjusters, you know, ears are buzzing and he's thinking, great, the doctors are signing off that he's able to work. And he's, you know, being encouraged to do volunteer work or some side work for family and friends. This absolutely means that he can go and do either his own job or some other job. So you know what they're going to do, right, John? They are on the path of closing his claim. And so he's come to me and he said, what do I do here? I definitely don't have the medical clearance to work. I don't even know if my employer can accommodate. I'm getting sort of partial responses from the adjuster on that issue. Do I talk to my employer directly? Like, what do I do here? And so here's an interesting screen capture of a situation that many, many people find themselves in. And it's actually, John, not a legal question. It's actually a medical one. I think it is important for the doctors to be a little bit more clear around what the ongoing functional limitations are for Phil and actually put that together in like a comprehensive report, some details, some context around why they have actually suggested that maybe doing a little bit of volunteer work, not actual work, by the way, just something on the side to test the waters, provide some context around why that was important for them to gauge because my suspicion and expectation is, which is what Phil was telling me, that he's not actually getting the green light to go back. So the insurance company's premise for what they're leading him on the path to do and to close a disability claim is absolutely incorrect. It's absolutely wrong. And it's wrong in the sense that it's rushing someone back to work or a workplace setting regardless if it's his own occupation or any occupation, without medical support that he's capable of doing it. So I say this frequently, volunteer work, partial work, doing a little bit of stuff on the side for your family and friends, not actual work. That is not going to rise to the level of certainly your own occupation. And then any occupation is typically about two thirds of, you know, your salary and income that you were making before. Right. So if you're basically, you know, maybe charging a friend 50 bucks to do their tax return, that that is not going to get you two thirds to a regular salary as a financial individual. So I thought it was an interesting, you know, element to talk to our to our listeners about, because I find that there can be a lot of difficulty around navigating not only your adjuster, but really getting some clear information from your own medical team about what to do in a situation like this. And I think the clear takeaway here is, look, absolutely have an open dialogue with your doctors. Do not rush back to any sort of work setting. Don't consider volunteer work or any other type of work, frankly, unless you really do have that support from a medical basis to actually make those attempts. And then look, insurance companies are going to do what they're going to do. And if they are wrong in what they are doing, that is why we are here, right? Our consults are free. You can contact us at any time. We're happy to talk this through with you. It may mean we have a few conversations, exchange some emails and see how these things progress. But it allows me then to give guidance to people like Phil to say, okay, this is what you're going to do with the insurance company. This is what you need to do with the employer. And let's see where this lands. But the key in his situation, in my mind, was going back to the doctor's. 
And with that, I implore you to reach out to Tamar anytime. It doesn't matter if you think you are uh, you don't have a case or you don't think you have any legs to stand on. It's not all about the insurance company. And we try to reiterate that uh, every show. Again, one 821 5900 to reach out to Tamar and the team. And help at disabilityrights.ca, which is where we're going to go now. Uh, first email of the show. Let's get this in before the break. Uh, Tamar Janine writes in, says, Hey, Tamar went on disability for depression and bipolar and had a late miscarriage a year ago while on LTD that affected my depression. I found out I was pregnant and had another miscarriage that needs to be treated by doctors. It is so much pain to go through again. Do I need to tell my LTD insurance about this? Will they try to stop my LTD because I was pregnant again? Uh, Will it be bad for my claim? A lot of stress there. Yeah, poor Janine. Look, I'm so empathetic and sympathetic of the situation, and it's never easy to deal with these kinds of issues. And then on top of everything else, having to deal with disability. I think what I'm not entirely clear on is, look, is she still on disability? Is she not on disability? Uh, Let me shed some light on how that would work. Most disability policies will have a section that says, you know, we're going to pay the disability benefit, except we won't pay in these circumstances. Okay. And, And those exceptions include a parental leave period. So it it sounds to me as though Janine actually hasn't started her maternity leave or parental leave period just yet, but in fact has been going through fertility issues with some mental health conditions related to that. No surprise there. And so, you know, my inclination is yes, I know it is incredibly painful to share this information with an insurance company and an adjuster who doesn't know you, but by the same token, if these elements of your health are preventing you from working and you're not actually on your parental leave, then by all means, you are entitled to disability benefits, okay? So I think that the best way to approach this really is to actually have that information, the history of the information, the limitations around physical mental health that are associated with conditions like this, and have that be put forward to the insurance company. Because if they don't have full information, John, and sometimes even when they do, you know, the inclination is to decline claims, right? And so they may see a, a profile like this and assume things about a profile like Janine's unfairly or fairly. Yeah. So, you know, one of the tough things I see, John, is that insurance companies, some adjusters will assume that the process of starting your family means that you're functional enough to work, Okay. And I can tell you that that's not necessarily the case. You know, those two things don't necessarily go together. Just because you're trying to have a family doesn't mean that you don't have health conditions that prevent you from working. But I have seen those assumptions being made unfairly and being held against claimants as a basis for the insurance company to deny an otherwise valid claim. Mm -hmm. It's not correct. You know, it's not a fair assumption to make. And frankly, you know, obviously it's going to impact women more so than men in situations like this. So it makes it that much more egregious if you ask me, you know, if if I'm going to sort of fly my feminist flag here for just a moment. Um, You know, I think with Janine, though, if she's got the support of perhaps a psychologist even or whoever is treating the depression, maybe it's a family doctor. I got to think that the family doctor is in a great position to detail what she's been going through and perhaps create a little bit of a barrier in the sense that the medical report will speak for you, right? In a situation like that. So you don't necessarily have to directly talk to the adjuster, at least out of the gates about what's been happening with you from a health perspective. 
I would put all of that information together and certainly submit that to the disability insurer for consideration. And Janine, with that, we implore you to uh, reach out by phone if you need to. Further the uh, discussion on email, you can do that. And uh, how do you do it? one 821 5900 We'll go to a short break. And for you, you want to reach out through email just like Janine did. Tamara and her team always ready to get on top of those. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Thanks for hanging in. we got lots more to go, so we'll... We'll just keep on rolling. You want to reach out uh, when the show is done. Tamar and her team, it's a, it's a phone number. It's one 821 5900 You have the option of this, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's a website built for that exactly. Ask your questions about uh, disability law. And uh, that rather wide umbrella, you may have questions to ask and a little bashful to pick up a phone. Do them there anonymously. It's also a searchable database of questions, so something similar to yours may already be in the archive. Save you some time, right? If not, use it, mydisabilityquestions.com, and then emails the ones we get to on the show, help at disabilityrights.ca. We often hear tomorrow uh, insurance companies say, okay, you need treatment? No problem. We got a guy. Go down the street. This one's perfect. We're going to send you to this particular treatment provider. Is there an advantage or disadvantage to someone going to the clinic the insurance company wants them to go to for treatment, not an assessment, for, 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 uh, for treatment onward? Yeah. Yeah, actual treatment. Uh, we got a guy like that, John. Um, and, and they do, right? I mean, they, you know, insurers do have a pretty broad network of facilities that they can access. And, you know, sometimes they can get you in front of the line, so to speak, and, and that can be helpful. So I do think that that is one advan- advantage, most certainly, is that if you are, you know, I've got lots of clients in remote areas, John. So if you're in a remote area and Perhaps, you know, there's a long wait list for a psychologist uh, in that remote area, or maybe there's one physiotherapist or two physiotherapists and you can't get those kinds of treatment providers, you know, readily accessible. And by all means, it could be that the insurer will, will hook you up to a, to a better location or somewhere where you can get to the front of the line. Uh, but don't forget that they're going to use your extended health benefits plan first. So they'll eat that up first before they actually start paying for the treatment that they suggested for you. So that's number one. And then number two, you know, if they're paying for this treatment, you know, they're going to want some kind of result, right? So usually these treatment providers know who's paying their bills and it's not you, right? So if it's not you, uh, you know, it can create some allegiances perhaps that are not being made clear to the claimant, right? So yes, you know, they, they have their codes and so on. They are obligated to treat you fairly and, you know, provide you all the therapeutic options that you need. But I have seen number of times, John, where the treatment provider will say one thing to my client or claimant, and they'll say something totally different to the insurance company, for example, on things like progress. So I recently was working on a claim, I want to share this with with, uh, our listeners, where uh, the insurance company decided, okay, look, we're going to put this individual into a work hardening treatment type program. Uh, we're going to provide an occupational therapist. We're going to do, you know, comprehensive reports. Um, and, you know, we, we have the benefit of this, you know, amazing team that we're going to put together to put you on the process where hopefully in sort of an eight to, t- to 12 week window, we're going to get you back to work in essence. Okay. 
And so, of course, you can see very, you know, tunnel vision insurance company is going to pay money here so that they can basically close the file, ideally, is what they'd like to do. So, you know, there's this individual who, you know, diligently attends the program and then, you know, assessment report after assessment report, more problems, barriers, health issues are identified by the treatment provider. So every time, you know, this individual is going for treatment and therapy, the report that's getting sent to the insurance company is showing that there's these barriers. Okay, well, look, now, you know, this individual wasn't able to do this particular exercise or wasn't able to accomplish this particular homework. And so they're not progressing in sort of that eight to 12 week window that the insurance company expected. So there's, there's an uncomfortable phone call then that happens between the treatment provider and the insurance company, unbeknownst to my client, by the way, that essentially, (laughs) that essentially says, look, I don't think this individual is going to be ready to get back to work. And nothing is said to the claimant uh, in that regard. Basically, they just get a letter saying, if you don't complete the treatment, you're going to get cut off because our policy says you are obligated to continue the treatment and, you know, you've got to do it and we'll continue paying you while you do the treatment. But if you don't want to do it, we're going to cut you off because the backdrop of, of that, of course, was that the treatment itself was causing a whole bunch of health issues for her. And anyway, I could go on and on and on. But it just highlights in my mind, John, the issues that can come with just blindly going along with the insurance company's treatment provider. Okay. So absolutely. It creates some access to treatment. Absolutely. I can understand the financial benefit if you don't have to pay out of pocket for it, but just bear in mind that the allegiances could be towards the insurance company. There could be some biases there. And if you don't have your own treatment providers in place in that same time frame, then you're not going to have anybody in your corner to say, look, this person is struggling. Your treatment is exacerbating his or her conditions. You know, your this plan is not realistic. You know, this individual is not going to be able to get back to work yeah. in the time that you expect. Exactly. Yeah. So look, you know, yes, there are some advantages, but I think the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. So if you can get your own, you know, doctor to direct that treatment to a provider that is known to them, then I would much, much prefer to see individuals go down that path and so that they can get, you know, uh, open, transparent uh, treatment and reports about progress that aren't sort of biased or colored by the insurance company's involvement. And anytime there's any discrepancy or they're not sure, just call you. I mean, seriously, before they <laughs> sign on, the tr- just say, you know what, I caught, I caught what you said in the show, but I want a little more detail tomorrow. So before I say yes or no to uh, the insurance company and this particular provider, you know, give me Absolutely. some uh, some advice, right? Right. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. It's how you do that. And uh, tomorrow, and our team standing by. Uh, Hardeep, I guess is our next email. Thanks for writing in, Hardeep. Again, it's help at disabilityrights.ca. Says I've been on LTD since January twenty twenty with fibromyalgia and migraines. I also have been approved for CPP disability as well as a disability tax credit. My insurance company is sending me to one of their doctors for a mandatory medical assessment. Can they do this? My doctor has told me I'm permanently off work, so I don't see the point of it. <laughs> I don't see the point of it either. Ah. <laughs> so so the, the, the short answer is yes, they can do this. Okay. And so it ties very nicely to what I was just talking about with treatment providers. So let's not forget, there is a policy in place, right? This is a contract. The contract is written by the insurance companies with some minimal input by your employer, usually, usually their group plan. And so the terms and conditions absolutely favor the insurance company, most especially when it comes to 
we can have you assessed. We, if we think you need rehab, we're going to get you the rehab. We're going to make you go because if you don't go, we're going to cut off the claim. So this kind of thing we see quite a bit, John, and I think we see it more so in claimants like fibromyalgia, migraines, you know, these are inherently what we call subjective type claims, right? It's not something that you see on a scan or an x-ray or so on, especially fibromyalgia in particular. I've got lots of clients who have this condition, very, very difficult one to diagnose and very, very difficult to treat. And so it's you know very technical, but it's a diagnosis of exclusion, which means they go through a whole host of other testing and evaluations and then conclude that it must be fibromyalgia. And so the challenge with that is that most insurers, you know, doesn't fit neatly in a rehab box where they can say, okay, we're going to give you this and then you should be better and you should be back at work. And so when you've got profiles like Hardeep's, you know, they're, because it's so subjective, they're going to want their own doctor or their own treatment provider to make that same assessment about your limitations. Fibromyalgia in particular also is very variable depending on, you know, the level of it or how the symptoms impact you. It can change by person to person. So I, you know, yes, is the conclusion probably going to be the same types of conclusions that have already been documented by Hardeep's, you know, doctors? Absolutely. But unfortunately, in order to continue receiving your disability benefit, you as a claimant do have an obligation to abide by the terms and conditions of the policy, which includes submitting yourself to one of these assessments. So, you know, look, here's what I would suggest that he does. Certainly go to the assessment, but go into it, you know, with some expectation that, you know, it may push you past the the limits, your normal limits. And if that's the case, make sure that you're documenting that somewhere. So definitely give your best foot forward. I'm certainly not suggesting that you limit yourself through the assessment, but also be mindful of the fact that there's a goal here for the insurer. And that's just sort of see what those limits are and then use that as a baseline to say, okay, with those limits, could you work? So there is some self-interest from the insurer to make those assessments, sure. but they're not going to you know, call you the next day, John, and ask you, how did it go? Are you in bed? Are you feeling, how are you feeling? You know, did you need an extra, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, some kind of injection or chiropractic treatment that week because we put you through this difficult assessment? No one's going to ask Hardeep those questions. So, you know, it is important that he document those kinds of issues on his end and have his own medical team engaged so that they can potentially rebut any kind of conclusions that the insurance company might make that come out of this kind of assessment. So I tend to agree that I don't see a lot of point to it. But by the same token, you know, I don't want to see Hardeep losing the opportunity of continuing to get his LTD benefits. And if the writing's on the wall, that there's, it's an uncontroversial condition that he's got, the symptoms and limitations are well documented, then I think it would be foolish, frankly, for the insurance company to do anything but to continue the disability benefits, especially if he's been approved for CPP disability and the disability tax credit. So. You know, John, let's talk about that. I know we talk about that a lot on the show, but it's worth talking about again because the tests to qualify for these government benefits, which is what they are, are if you have a severe and prolonged disability. That's the test for CPP disability, and it's a similar test for the disability tax credit. And look, I I applaud the government for having these additional supports for individuals who are in a situation like Hardeep. You know, and I think that it is important that individuals access it. 
But insurers, for whatever reason, sometimes are not that persuaded by those tests. And and I think the trouble becomes, you know, frankly, if they go off and sort of cut off claims when individuals have profiles like Hardeep's, well, it makes the case that much easier for me and my team. Let's be honest, John. I mean, if the insurance company is going to do an assessment of Hardeep and the you know, the conclusion on that is, look, you know, he's going to get cut off, then I'm hoping the very next call is to a disability lawyer, because we are going to leverage these facts against the insurer to secure a resolution and further LTD benefits for Hardeep in a situation like this. Do you almost sometimes, I know we got a break in a couple of minutes, but do you yeah. sometimes see this coming around the corner, especially with a diagnosis like fibromyalgia, which sounds technical, but it, from a medical standpoint, it, it basically breaks down to fibromyalgia, muscle pain. That's what it means. So yeah, it can be ambiguous to some degree. So do you get this, you almost see this coming when it comes to insurance companies because it can be a vague diagnosis? Not that it's not real. It's very real. But because it's not, like you said, a broken arm or a brain injury, they're going to go, eh, you know what? You're going to have to go for more assessments. Absolutely. We do, yeah. we do John. And, and I think that I, I sort of chuckled sardonically, like I sarcastically in the sense sure. that, you know, I see it so much that it's become sort of the cornerstone of most of the work that I do. And, and it's this, this cardinal sin of insurance, which is, you know, imputing an objective analysis to an inherently subjective claim. I, I feel like I must say this every time, but it's, it's the reality, which is, you know, courts have accepted subjective claims are compensable. This is there's a valid basis to say that issues like chronic pain, like fibromyalgia, like migraines, I could go on and on. If they have symptoms that are disabling individuals from working, it equals to disability benefits. And I think that insurers get frustrated because to your point, it doesn't have a strict course of, okay, we're going to give it six months and then this individual is good to go. And that variability and that lack of the end date means that insurers are responsible to continue paying the benefit if the individual is satisfying the test, much like what I suspect is happening with Hardeep, because I think he said to us he's been on disability since January of 2020. Yep. That tells me he's past the two-year mark. Guess what? You know, that that tells me that the insurance company is getting pretty nervous that perhaps they're going to have him on claim for a long time. Yeah. But that is what they're contractually obligated to do if an individual's profile meets the test. Lots more to come. Thanks, Hardeep, for uh, for the email reaching out by phone or for you as well, one 821 5900 And we'll continue. More Disability Law Show is coming right up. Stick around. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Yeah, Disability Law Show back at it tomorrow. Gopian Partners, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can reach out to Tamar and her crew. Anytime, we'll keep giving that number out, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. We, uh, we haven't talked about this in a little bit tomorrow, so uh, mm-hmm. let, let's cover it. And that is, when it comes to addiction, how do insurance companies deal with it? Is it more likely the insurance company will deny that disability claim? Because I know we're coming off fibromyalgia, so I thought I'd throw addiction next, right? Yeah, yeah. T- tough questions today, John. Yeah. That's a tough one. <laughs> you know, it's a tough one, but a really fair one because addiction in and of itself is a disability, right? And this can be in many different forms, many types of di- addiction, gambling, you know, uh, obviously Substance, alcohol, yeah. drugs, it's yeah. exactly. It, it can be the whole range of it. 
And, you know, I get my bee in my bonnet a little bit about addiction claims because most disability policies still have an exclusion that says that an insurance company is not going to cover a disability claim if it's due to a substance use or abuse problem. And, and there's case law that says this is against human rights. I mean, you, you can't have these kinds of provisions in your disability policies. Yeah. So I just scratch my head that these insurers still have them and then scratch my head even stronger, if I may say that, when they use it to deny claims, right? Like, I mean, I think it just sort of adds insult to injury. And so, yes, you know, could could that element of someone's disability be the basis for a denial of a disability benefit? Absolutely. I have seen it very regularly. But they'll dress it up, John, because they know what I know, which is if they just make it all about the substance issue, they're going to be, you know, they've got some problems there because they know the case law and they know what I'm talking about with it being a valid basis for a disability claim. But there are concerns from the insurance company, wrongly, I may add, that, you know, a substance issue perhaps is one that is difficult to resolve. Okay. So, you know, if anyone has a, a, anyone in their world that has had substance issues uh, before or any kind of addiction issues, they can relapse and remit. So, yes. you know, look, I, I'm not a doctor. It's not, I'm not coming at it from that direction. Just generally having the experience with clients and claimants who have dealt with addiction issues, it comes and goes. And when it comes and goes, it just doesn't fit within what insurance companies, disability insurers want to do with claims like this, John. They want to approve. They want to support for a little while, maybe get you the right treatment. And then they want to cut off the claim, close it out, move on, get you back to work, right? That That's the way their model works, or perhaps not even approve it at all. And so the challenge becomes persuading them that even with treatment, you still have ongoing health issues. Because... With addiction, you know, it can come with lots of mental health elements, you know, it, it's somewhat complex to treat. And so insurance companies will use the appropriate treatment clauses in the policy to deny these kinds of claims. That's what they'll do. So they won't say directly it's related to substance issues. They'll just say, look, you know, if you're not under proper treatment, you know, we don't think that this is appropriate for us to be paying the benefit. Uh, so maybe you've got to go to rehab, maybe you've got to do a specific counseling, but if you don't do those things, we're not going to continue paying the benefit or we're not going to approve your benefit at all, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, you know, it brings to mind a client that I'm working with right now, a uh, very similar situation. So she's had addiction issues for a long time. Um, and you know, the insurance company actually approved the claim, uh, out, out of the gates, which I was pleasantly surprised by, uh, put her through a fairly comprehensive rehab plan. And it was, you know, at their expense, they, they paid for most of it, used her extended health care plan to pay for some of it. And then uh, determined wrongly, by the way, that after she was done with this plan, she was good to go, ready to get back to work. And the treatment providers were telling the insurance company, no, she's not ready to get back to work. Yes, she's been clean and sober for the last eight weeks since she's been in our plan, but you've got to give her support after she's part outside of our plan to ensure that she stays on track and doesn't sort of, you know, fall off the wagon, so to speak. And that's exactly what happened, John. So they cut her off. She's been struggling. Now she doesn't have any money to pay for treatment. She definitely needs more treatment. And, you know, it's just turned her all upside down when she was already on the right path by the insurance company. 
And so this is situations where it becomes really unfortunate. And frankly, the insurers really expose themselves to extra contractual claims, things like damages, mental health, distress damages, this kind of thing. When you know someone is in such a compromised state and you rush them off claim improperly after providing some support, you know, this, I don't want to say they've got blood on, blood on their hands, John, but it just, it's the profile is just not good. This is not a case where they're going to come before a judge and say, yeah, you know what, we're proud of what we did here. We can stand behind our policy. There's a human behind all of this. And I think the loss of that humanity, at least in that particular instance, made it very egregious. So I'm passionately advocating for, obviously, we've started a legal claim. Awesome. You know, we've we've put everything, you know, towards the insurer to do right by her. Um, and also trying to navigate, you know, the the medical system to see if we can get her some better supports. But at the end of the day, you sort of scratch your head and think, you know, these are the kinds of people that need disability benefits. That is what is meant. This is what they're meant to do. Supposed to be a peace of mind policy. So, look, I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit today, but I think it is important for individuals to understand out there that we are here to advocate. If you need that support. If this profile is sounding familiar, if the insurance company is using your addiction as the basis to decline your claim, please don't hesitate to get some advice. I know it can be overwhelming, but you do have rights in situations like this. It all starts with a chat, right? Uh, don't hesitate to do exactly that. As tomorrow always advises, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Oscar, stand by. We'll get to your email after a short break. And you can also ask questions anonymously at mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll continue with uh, more Disability Law Show after a short break. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Disability Law Show indeed. 1-855-821-5900. Your first time listening to us. We hope you learned lots. If you're a repeat customer, we love having you back for another week. You know how to reach out anytime. As I just mentioned, one 855 821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca through email. Tamara Gobian, partner, Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP, always there to help. She's got a wonderful crew behind her, and they will take their time and just have a chat with you on the phone and listen to your concerns and your issues and move forward if necessary at that point. Uh, Oscar, promised you we get your email doing it right now. It says, uh, Tamara, I'm currently on LTD with severe back pain. My insurance company has told me that the 15 weeks of short-term benefits from my employer and my unemployment sick benefit of 15 weeks is counted in the two years that I am entitled to. Is this correct? They're now asking me to do a resume and asking for my skills and for my documents for my pension plan. Can they do that? I have no idea what I'm applying for in order to make a resume. I haven't finished high school and I've worked all my life in construction. Can you help me? Wow. I can, Oscar. I can. Uh, really, really good questions. And so I'm going to break them down and talk about them uh, separately. For one, I want to focus on this whole 15 weeks and 15 weeks and the yes. two-year calculation. Oh, let's talk Please. about that part, okay, John? <laughs> so uh, what Oscar is explaining to us about is when does the time clock start to an- assess that first two-year window? What is that own occupation period? Uh, when does it begin? Okay, and some policies, it begins right at the moment when you became unwell to work. So your date of disability is what it's called. And so the insurance company will use that first date where you had medical support that you couldn't work as a result of your health. 
and they will start the clock, so to speak, for the 24 months or two years of payments from that date forward. Some policies, though, will give you credit for the short-term period. So that two-year clock won't start until after that initial uh, period of short-term before long-term disability begins. So this idea of credits or time really line up with what's considered the qualifying period or the elimination period. In other words, it's a waiting period between the date of disability, the time you became unwell and could not work, to the date that you started or were supposed to start getting long-term disability benefits. And that period of time varies from policy to policy, John. Sometimes it's 17 weeks, sometimes it's 26 weeks. It sounds like in Oscar's case, it's going to be 30 weeks. Uh, And it's probably because the policy has something in the short-term plan that says, we're going to give you 15 weeks. Employer will probably pay that a short-term disability. And then we expect you to apply for EI sickness benefits. Again, similar test to qualify. Are you disabled from working? And we're going to add that up before we get to dollar one for LTD. And yet we're still going to consider the first two years of those benefits as if it had started from the date of disability. It doesn't seem right to me though, John, I got to tell you, like I have a trouble with that idea because you can see that it can suck up sort of five, six, seven months of benefits potentially before LTD is on the hook. And then it kind of prematurely brings that own occupation period to a, a, a perceptual end sooner than theoretically it should. But at the end of the day, it goes down back down to what does the policy say? What are you insured for? Take a very careful look on your employee benefit booklet. Make sure you've got it all figured out and that what the insurance company is saying to you is actually correct. Because if it's not correct, then obviously you don't want to agree to the way that they're calculating the timeframes. Why is that relevant? And I right. think it's more so relevant for Oscar because it certainly sounds like he's in the midst of the any occupation analysis. So what are they doing? John, I talked about this at the top of the show. The test will change after this, those first two years. The insurance company will look at whether or not, even with Oscar's health profile, the severe back pain and so on, if he's capable of, capable of doing another occupation, something else, not the construction work that he's been doing all his life, but something else that would allow him to work even with his health issues and would give him roughly compensation of two thirds of what he was making before. So give or take the, the LTD benefit. That's usually what the LTD benefit is pegged at. So in the process of doing that, the insurance company has to vet what is your education, what's your background, what's the work that you've done, you know, and they do an analysis. It's called a transferable skills analysis. Can we take essentially Oscar's skills, his background, assume some restrictions given his health, and then look at whether or not we can plunk him into a different job, even with this profile. The thing is, though, John, uh, my team and I will say this very regularly, these transferable skills analysis most times are not worth the paper they're written on, okay? Oftentimes, there's a bunch of gaps. The assumptions are not complete. It assumes a greater level of function than what's realistic. There's a whole host of problems with it. But when I listen to or read, when we read Oscar's email and he says to us, look, I I didn't finish high school and all I've done is construction work, with a physical health issue usually the fallback plan for the insurance company is putting you into an office job. And I got to think when you've got a back problem, you're not going to be able to sit in an office job and do it. 
let alone having the educational requirements to be able to do a job like that. So look, I agree with Oscar, like, why do I need a resume? You're right, you're not going to be applying for jobs, but they need a screen capture of what your background is so they can do the analysis on their end and make the determination as to whether or not, given what I've described, he's going to continue to meet the test of total disability beyond the change of definition. And that the onus of that is on the insurance company, John. This is the other thing that claimants don't understand necessarily is that you think, okay, well, I got to accept what the insurance company is saying. Absolutely not. If they haven't done the right analysis, if they're going to take perhaps a ridiculous position and say, you know what, Oscar, you can do an office job, even though you've never done a job sitting at a computer before, then that proposition is simply not going to fly. And so if that's the case, and that is eventually where his claim is going, then please, by all means, don't hesitate to assert your rights against the insurance company by way of a legal claim. I mean, it, the the analysis alone gives us excellent fodder to challenge the disability insurer on the assumptions that they've made. We do that very effectively on behalf of our clients. We've got a really high degree of success. And frankly, in some ways, I prefer to have the transferable skills analysis because I regularly will poke holes in that, John, and say to the insurance sure. company's lawyer, look, this is ridiculous. You're not going to be putting Oscar in an office job with severe back pain and you know very limited educational uh, background. So yes, we can help, you know, especially if it's headed in the direction that I think it is, which is likely the insurer will do their analysis and try and find a way to cut off the claim, unfortunately. And that commensurate income, I guess, is the actual term. That's what, around 60 to 70% of what he was uh, normally getting? Yeah, Yeah, good question, John. So what I was saying before was that the LTD benefit is is pegged at two-thirds usually of what you're making. And so that is the level that they're looking at in terms of putting you into a different job. So it's no longer your ability to go back to your own job and make the same income level. It's reduced, right? It's it's if you can make two thirds. And so depending on what Oscar was making before his disability, that that threshold becomes lower from the insurer's perspective. And so they'll say, yeah, you can, you know, maybe answer some phones or do some data entry and you'll meet that commensurate wage or commensurate earnings, that level that we can say, okay, we've checked off the box as the insurance company, and we're sending you back into the workforce, because we don't think pursuant to our policy that we're obligated to continue paying the benefit, when we can demonstrate in our analysis, faulty analysis, may I add, that you can go and do these other jobs in the circumstances. Yeah, you know what, good luck. I mean, uh, we don't know what Oscar's, you know, pulling down every year but construction workers regardless of education can do very well so getting him to commensurate income but just you know filing some papers that could be a difficult task for this insurance company a lot of these guys do very well in construction absolutely and i think that's where it becomes super important that you have a clear understanding how the analysis is being done by the insurance company what information they have about your level of income and experience do be comprehensive about that information to the insurer especially if it's going to help you persuade them that their analysis doesn't make sense and that it's not just an easy fix to put you into an office environment and earn two-thirds of what you were making before. And that is it for another week. Tremendous stuff as always, my friend. You want to reach out to Tamara Gopian, you can do that right now that we're done. one 821 
5900 uh, by phone through email to help at disabilityrights.ca and online for questions anonymously. You can ask them with your keyboard, mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.